As was already mentioned, and indeed, it would certainly be appropriate for me to also amplify that thought, how blessed it is for us to be able to gather this evening, certainly in the presence of the membership of Pippin and others who are visiting with us. We're so thankful for all the attendance, and we certainly hope that that which is done will not only be encouraging to each of us, but most importantly, edifying to the name of the God of heaven as it exalts and builds that name up and proclaims it to a world that so desperately needs the message of the God of heaven and all the power that associates to it. This evening, as you likely can tell, also from the wall there again on my left, we'll continue a series of studies that we began back several weeks ago, considering the book of John. And our reason for that continues to still be that our youngsters are studying that book in preparation for the Bible Bowl. And certainly you and I can also learn much from a study of John. And as we proceed through this series, we will in fact be involved in it for several weeks to come, in fact, until about the middle of September. And as we make our way through the book, we'll be reminded of some impressive and powerful truths that are as desperately needed today as they were on the occasion the inspired apostle penned this book so many centuries ago now. We have studied to this point John chapters 1, chapter 2, and even um, through the bulk of chapter 3. As we closed chapter 3 and looked at the character of the belief of the disciples as well as the unbelief seen in some, that does bring us so intriguingly to chapter 4, which is the lesson that we will consider tonight. As you can see, it'll be John chapter 4 verse 1 through chapter 5 verse 47. Those are two rather lengthy chapters, and thus we will somewhat take it as our approach to delve our attention towards some of the high points of each of them, appreciating again how wonderful the study of the book of John is. Well, that comment made, might I invite your attention with me to, in fact, John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, as we look interestingly at a episode, an encounter between the Son of God and a Samaritan woman. So often we're reminded of that scene in the book of John simply because it was such an overwhelming thing for her as well as for the individuals of Samaria. Let us look interestingly then at what was so overwhelming to them about it and also the powerful truths that Jesus had to share with her. When we left our previous study, Jesus was in the area of Judea. That's in the southernmost part of the Palestinian area. However, John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, quickly inform us that the Lord had as his interest to travel from Judea toward Galilee. And as he did that, of course, he necessarily needed to pass through that region that existed between them. If you can imagine a rather slight or sliver of land... In fact, that's exactly the way that Palestine looks. It is far longer north to south than it is east to west. The southernmost region is known as Judea. The northernmost region is known as Galilee. And that region that sits between them is in fact Samaria. And thus the most direct route to travel from Judea to Galilee would be to pass directly through Samaria. And so in fact our Lord took that approach. And as he passed through the region of Samaria we rather quickly learn that as he was leaving Judea, the subject of baptism arose. And the text, in fact, informs us that Jesus preached baptism and his disciples performed many of them, but he himself did not actually physically perform those baptisms. And upon leaving that Judean area, 
he proceeded to travel through Samaria toward Galilee. However, when he came to the city of Sychar, which in fact is related to the Old Testament city of Shechem, but when he came to Sychar, he in fact, somewhat being weary at the noon hour of the day, was such that he in fact sat near that well, or sat in fact beside that well. It's interesting that the actual preposition means he sat at the well. Whether that means he sat very closely positioned to it, or whether he actually sat upon it, is a bit difficult to tell. But at any rate, at this noonday hour, he sat there, and a woman, a Samaritan woman, came to the well to draw water. A rather amazing conversation ensued between them. And isn't it amazing still that Jesus initiated that conversation? The Lord had every interest in the personal welfare of this Samaritan woman. Though he himself was a Jewish man, he did not ignore her. He did not avoid her. He did not evade her. He, in fact, started the conversation by, in fact, stating, Give me water to drink. She proceeded, of course, to be surprised. She, in fact, knew the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, and yet you ask me for a drink? In her surprise and in her shock, she quickly allowed the conversation to flow, directed, of course, by the mastery of the master, for he turned that conversation to what she needed most desperately, spiritual instruction. And so it was that Jesus said, had you asked, I would have made available to you living water, water that in fact would redound unto everlasting life. She was, of course, greatly interested in that water and in fact stated, please give me such water so that I may not be thirsty again. Jesus, of course, was not speaking to her about the water that came from Jacob's well. That well that, of course, was the one around which the Lord was sitting. But rather the Lord was turning this conversation to living water, spiritual water to quench one's spiritual thirst forevermore. As she perceived that he was a prophet, Along that given discourse, the Lord told her, Go and bring your husband. Isn't that an interesting reference? Because she rather quickly said, I have no husband. The Lord, of course, being the omniscient one and able to read the thoughts of her mind and the character of her heart, quickly affirmed, In what you have said, that is correct. You have no husband, but you have had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. Reminding that day and until our own that marriage is not to be taken lightly. Living with someone does not constitute marriage. That does not make a husband and a wife. Rather, that makes sinful fornication, doesn't it? The man that you're now with is not your husband. And thus, she immediately perceived something very special about this man, this man named Jesus. For he hadn't told her these matters, but he knew these things about her. Might we pause for just a moment to comment? Jesus knows everything about you and about me as well. We can't conceal anything from him. He knows the innermost thoughts of the recesses of your heart and mine. He knows that which crosses the thoughts of our character. He knows the deeds done in the body and those that we fail to do. Furthermore, he's well aware of the words that we employ, the way that we employ them, the motive behind them. Just as this woman learned, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. May you and I perceive also that the one with whom we deal is ever aware of all that takes place in your life and mine. 
It is futile to attempt to hide things from him. Consider these passages if you would. In Proverbs 15.3 we read, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Policemen are well aware that most of the crime occurs under the darkness of night because the thief thinks that he or she can conceal things and not be as quickly discovered or found at night. Also, might we appreciate how erroneous that thought is in terms of our spiritual life. We may think that under cover of sinful darkness, we can behave and conduct ourselves in a way that no one knows, friend. It's true, no other human may know, but God knows it. Christ knows it, and the thoughts of your heart alone are enough to condemn any of us to, in fact, a devil's hell. Matthew chapter 15, verses 12 and following. But perhaps another text that we should bring to mind found in the Hebrew letter. In Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There is no creature that is not manifested in his sight. This lady came to see that, didn't she? She knew in just a few moments of conversation that this one with whom she was speaking knew everything about her knew the character of who she was with and the fact he wasn't her husband. She perceived that he had a special knowledge. May we never forget the special knowledge the Lord has. For Acts 1.24 still states that he is the heart searcher. He can search your heart and mine. He knows every character and every flaw and every complimentary thing as well. But let us return to our story. Just as surely as this woman perceived the Lord to be a prophet... We rather quickly learned that that gave Jesus the opportunity to turn the attention to the word Messiah. In fact, she quickly made affirmation that she knew that one called Messiah was to come. But Jesus was able to say that I that speak unto thee am he. Jesus told her he was the Messiah. He, in fact, did not in any sense try to cloud the point. He said, I am that Messiah that Old Testament Christ, the one anointed of God. Today, as we contemplate that very issue, let us, in fact, bring ourselves to notice what happened. She quickly, it seems, dropped her water pot, ran into the city and told the men about this man with whom she had had conversation, and she urged them, come and see a man who told me all things that ever I did. Her excitement burst forth to the extent that she went and gushingly told these men of the city, these men of Sychar, please, you need to come and hear this man. In fact, isn't it interesting that they did come? They were so entrapped by her language and her words, they came and also heard Jesus and many of the Samaritans believed on the Lord. That brings us to an interesting point. Perhaps four brief lessons before we continue our study. As you consider these four brief lessons, I have listed them in the following way. First of all, and somewhat perhaps basically, every person is vitally important to God. This was a Samaritan woman. One might have thought that she would have been an outcast person on earth, but in the eyes of God she wasn't. Here was the omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful Son of God in the flesh, and he took the time to have conversation with her. And he took the time to, in fact, share with her the most necessary information of her eternal well-being. 
And friend, today, may none of us ever think that we are less than important in the eyes of God. Many psychologists have noted that the world at large seems to have a self-esteem problem, seems to have a self-devaluation problem. If we are students of the Bible, we will know that God loved each and every one of us so much that He sent His Son for us. The very hairs of your head are numbered. He knows enough about you that He loves you to the point. And you are important enough that He sent His Son to die for you. Had there been only one person in sin on earth, the Lord would still have gone to the cross. That's how much that each and every one of us are valuable in the eyes of heaven. That very impressive thought helps us remember that we should then love our neighbors as ourselves. Mark twelve thirty one. We should appreciate that as God loves, so too should we. And that brings us to our second point, our second lesson given these initial verses. Is it not the case that we see in the Lord's conversation with this woman an elevation of that which is spiritual above that which is physical? There's no question that physical things are important. We need food to eat. We need clothes on our back, and we need a roof on our head. We need various and sundry physical concepts, but may we never make the mistake of thinking that they supersede in importance the things that are spiritual. After all, isn't it the case we can leave this life bereft of all the blessings of a physical character, and still, if we leave it faithful unto the Lord... Heaven will be our home. But on the other hand, if we live in the majesty and finery and extravagance of this world, but bereft of the Savior, we have nothing. Didn't the Lord say, ye can do nothing without me, John 15, 4 and 5? It is the point then that we must not forget that though we have the obligation to take care of things physical, the Lord said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. Matthew 6, verse 33. In the third place, we notice that family relationships can pose difficulties and perhaps even extremely difficult situations. Here was a woman. She had had five husbands. The man she was now living with or the one that she was with was not her husband. The Lord, in fact, by the message of the truth revealed to her, somewhat reminds us today, there can be difficult situations. A man and a woman who find themselves by the teaching of the Bible living in a marriage that's not a scriptural one, what is the right thing they should do? They should come to appreciate the necessity of repentance, which means to, in fact, put aside that marriage. That's the only thing that they can do in the sight of the Lord. May we recognize that that matter is vital. And that lady was taught that very great lesson on that day many, many years ago. In the fourth place, what about the beauty of godly worship? I'm sure that perhaps one of the highlight verses of this chapter is verse 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That Samaritan woman asked the Lord, So are we to worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem? You see, the Gentiles worshipped on a different mountain. It's Mount Gerizim. The Jews, of course, taught that it's at that temple in Jerusalem that one must worship. And the lady, in every aspect of propriety, asked, Who is right? The Lord said to her, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. 
He, in fact, affirmed that the time is coming when neither on this mountain or on that one or in Jerusalem shall men worship. The Lord was saying there's coming a new dispensation when at Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim, it will not matter. One can worship anywhere as long as it is done in spirit and in truth. Aren't we thankful today in Putnam County, Tennessee for that idea? We need not sojourn or travel to Jerusalem to worship. We can worship right here. As long as we do so in truth and in spirit, that is acceptable. That's what the Lord wants. That's what the Lord requires. The Lord taught the lady, this Samaritan lady that great lesson on that particular day. As we look forward, though, to further things in this study of the book of John, let's come to the next section of the lesson. This one, beginning in chapter 4, verse 43, and continuing until the end of chapter 5, has to do with four witnesses. Four witnesses. I think each of us are very aware of the importance of witnesses. When, say, a court case takes place, if there are witnesses to the crime, that is an exceedingly important and valuable thing. We each know that when we see something or have a testimony to it, that speaks volumes about how meaningful and the evidence that that matter has. Might I submit to you that in these verses that we're about to study, there are four witnesses of the Christ, four of them. And that leads to inescapable testimony to the fact that he was who he said he was, he brought to bear what he said he would, would do, and he established what he affirmed that he would. That leads us today then to pose the following question, and the world has had great trouble with this for centuries. Who was the Christ? Who was Jesus? Remember, there was one occasion the Lord straightforwardly asked that question. To those gathered at Caesarea Philippi, his apostles, he first said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? After their response, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, the Lord then said, But who do you say that I am? That question has to be answered by each and every individual on earth. For it has in it all the consequences of eternity. Who do you, Randy Bybee, say that I am? If we, with all the affirmation of our heart, affirm and agree that he is the Christ, that has direct consequences for what our life will be. If, on the other hand, we say anything else, we can't claim we don't know he's either the Christ or he's not. There's no middle ground. He's either the Son of God or he's not. He's either the Messiah or he's not. Anything other than saying he's the Messiah is thus to put us in the very realm of an infidel, one who does not believe, one who does not accept the truth and the evidence set forth in the Bible. What are these four witnesses that testify to the grandeur and majesty of the Son of God? Might I invite your attention to notice first the placement of the context. The Lord, we're told, left Samaria. Remember, he was on his way to Galilee when we encountered him previously, and he stopped at the well, and that's when the conversation with the woman took place. The Lord did complete that journey. He went on and left Samaria, making his way to Galilee. And we notice in verses 41 to 43, he was received wonderfully. The Galileans had an interest in what he said, and the Lord even affirmed that a prophet is not without honor save in his own country. The Lord arrived at these locations, and we immediately begin to see the first of the witnesses. 
Let me look at these witnesses or ask you to consider them with me in a different order in which they are presented in the text. Ultimately, we will have considered all of them by the time the lesson is over. In John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, let's look at the first witness. You can particularly see with me that there it's John the Baptist that is under discussion because in that very verse Jesus said, there is, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me. Who is the other one that bore witness of the Christ? The Lord quickly stated in verse 33, Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. The first individual, the first one that bore witness, and the first of the witnesses that we will consider this evening was none other than John the Immerser, John the Baptist. And in verse number 35, Jesus expressly referred to him as a burning and shining lamp. John was a majestic and towering figure in the biblical plan and in the biblical scheme. He was the forerunner of the Christ, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He, in fact, was stated in John 1, verses 6, 7, and 8 to be that great witness of the Christ. As you consider some of the statements about that witness, Jesus pointed out something remarkable. Didn't he say on that occasion that we just read, that verse that we just pointed out, the interesting fact that John bore witness to the truth. He bore witness to who Christ was, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. However, note what the Lord went on to say. He said in verse 34, But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Notice, only for a little while were they excited to receive the words of John. When John's preaching got to the point of who Christ was and what it meant to accept and to reject him, the Jews were no longer excited. And in fact, their hatred toward John ultimately came to the point that John's life was ultimately taken. Remember when, in fact, a dance took place before Herod. Herodias was so angered by the things that had taken place in the preaching of John, which preaching, by the way, was on the subject of divorce and remarriage. John had expressly said, it's not lawful for you to have her. Here was a relationship, a marriage that was not scriptural, and John had the backbone to preach it and to tell Herod of the error. And that so angered the lady involved, Herodias, that when the opportunity came, and in which... In fact, the one had danced in the eyes of Herod, and Herod had said, Ask anything you want, and I'll give it, even to half the kingdom. Her mother had said, I want John the Baptist's head. And of course, the king at that point, being unwilling to go back on his word that had been stated publicly, he had John beheaded. John, you see, taught and preached the character of the truth of the Christ. And the Jews ultimately were unexcited about that because... It was not the message that they wished to hear. But John the Baptist was the first of these witnesses. What about the second one? As you can see, the second one the Lord quickly affirmed for us in exactly the same context. Verse number 36, the one that was read earlier in our hearing tonight. But I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, 
The same works that I do bear witness of me. Those miracles, those signs that the Lord was able to perform were those matters that should have brought to the character of those who witnessed them an incredible belief in the fact that he was who he said he was. Today we live admittedly so many years removed from the capability of miraculous events on earth. The day of that has long since passed. But in your mind's eye for a moment, think what it would mean if there was a man that was blind, came in here and on the spot he could be healed of that blindness. Would that not give one an incredible appreciation for the power inherent in the one who did it? Or what about a man who's lame in his feet? Or maybe a person who is paralyzed? What if somebody were able to go to Cookville Regional Medical Center and clean out the whole sixth floor by healing everyone there on the spot of whatever ailment they had? Or what if someone could go to the cemetery up the road and raise half of those in it? Bring them back to life by virtue of the power inherent from the God of heaven. The miracles that the Lord did were given to him by the power of God as testimony that he was the Messiah. Notice he had already turned water to wine by this point in John chapter 2. He had already healed the nobleman's son in John chapter 4. And it would appear that other works had already of a miraculous character been performed. Jesus could do these things. And as we've noted, he was able to perform them immediately. When he pronounced a person healed, they didn't have to wait until the next week or the next month or the next year. book of Mark emphasizes the immediate character. Straightway was the way those healings were done. Isn't it amazing to then think about that power and how that, that was another one of the witnesses of who Jesus was. May we never forget the power that is housed in the character of those witnesses, those miracles Jesus did. And in fact, would it not be appropriate to remember another passage found in the book of John? We noticed this in their opening lesson of this series. Again, why was the book of John written? These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In that same context, it had been noted many other signs Jesus did. But John said, these are written that you might believe. When we read about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, or we read about him healing that man that was born blind in chapter 9, or at the pool of Bethesda healing that one that had been afflicted for 38 long years, the Lord healed all of them just as the biblical record details. And may I submit, no human on earth can do that today. In fact, since the days of miracles have passed, no one has been able to do such things. Jesus was the Son of God, and those miracles testified to that fact. As you contemplate the second of those works, notice that brings us to a detailed fact of the very first one that occurs in, at the end of chapter number 4. When I say the first one, it's the first one in our lesson this evening. In beginning in verse number 46 of John chapter 4, we find this very interesting situation. As Jesus came into the city of Cana, there was a nobleman who approached him. And this nobleman had a son that was exceedingly ill. Very ill, but the thing is, the son was still in Capernaum, some distance away. So here was Jesus in Cana. Here was his son in Capernaum as I've tried to indicate on some of the statements at the bottom of the slide. 
This nobleman came to Jesus and said, and asked the Lord, pleaded with him to in fact intervene on behalf of his son. My son is near the point of death, the father cried. Today, any of us that are fathers would know how anxiety or how anxious the heart would be over a son or a daughter that was on the brink of death. And yet, as we can see at the end of chapter number 4, when this father came, he said, in verse number 47, My son is at the point of death. And in verse 49, the nobleman said, Come down ere my son or ere my child die. The father knew the son was near to death. However, he said, Please come. And Jesus noticed the loving way he responded. The Lord simply said, Go thy way, thy son liveth. Jesus didn't need to go to Cana, or rather to Capernaum. The Lord, by speaking the word from those so many miles distant, could proclaim him healed. And the amazing thing is, the father believed him. Would you and I have that character of belief? Had we been in the Father's position and we besought the Lord, this man named Jesus, please come down and heal my son. And if we heard that man say, go your way, your son is healed. Would we have enough faith to walk on our way back home, ever confident that what the Lord had proclaimed would have happened? It is a testimony to the faith of that nobleman that he left. He didn't stay and hang on the coattails of the Lord and try to drag him to Capernaum. He believed what Jesus said. Interestingly enough, while he was on his way home, some of his own servants met him. And they announced to him the fabulous news, Your son lives! The nobleman asked, When did he start getting better? What time of day did you observe the fever to leave him? They said, in fact, the seventh hour... And the nobleman knew that was the very time he spoke with Jesus. The Lord healed that boy immediately. Can we not see yet another miraculous episode in the life of the Lord that that work testified of who he said he was? But look at yet another example. Another miraculous episode found in the study of these passages tonight. It comes in what occurs in the opening verses of chapter 5 at that pool called Bethesda in Jerusalem. As chapter 5 opens, we find Jesus again, sometime having passed, making his way back to Jerusalem to observe one of the feasts that was taking place there. There was a pool with five porches surrounding it. This pool in the Hebrew tongue was known as Bethesda. It seems to be somewhat like a home for the infirmed, a place where those that were ill and those that were paralyzed and those that had sickness, they gathered at this place you and I might think of it somewhat like an ancient form of a hospital, it would seem. However, there was something very interesting about that pool. As the text informs us, an angel on some occasions would come down and stir that water. And the text tells us the first person that was able to get in the water after the angel had stirred it was made whole of whatever ailment or whatever infirmity that that person had had. The sad fact is, though, there was a man at this Bethesda pool who was inflicted with a form of paralysis. Thus, he couldn't walk to the pool. Though he might have seen the water being stirred by the angel, he couldn't get there. And despite his best efforts, someone else would get to the water first. For 38 years, this man had been afflicted with this infirmity. 
when the Lord came, and isn't it interesting, Jesus apparently came to visit this place called Bethesda. He went to the hospital to visit those that were ill. The Lord had a compassionate and tender heart toward those in that disposition. And the Lord, in, in fact, initiated a conversation with this man. Notice the language that the Lord used. Verse 6 says, When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been a long time in that case, he said, Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be made well, the Lord asked? Do you want to be made cured from this ailment that's yours? And the man, of course, without any hesitancy, said, I have no man to put me in the water. He wasn't able to get there by his own efforts, and someone else would get to this troubled waters first. Jesus simply said in verse 8, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. This man hadn't been able to walk for at least 38 years. And suddenly now, by the pronouncement of this by the Lord, he was able to stand on his feet. The strength was in them. He was able to carry that bed and proceed out of Bethesda. Can you imagine when those in the vicinity watched this man leave and their eyes about as large as silver dollars? This man that had been so infirm for so long, now able to walk, the change that had been wrought in his life. This was another work, you see, that wrought to tell us who the Lord was. The amazing thing is, though, there were some people that weren't terribly excited about the fact that this man was healed. Can you believe that? There were some people who were less than enthused about the fact that he had been healed. Who were these people? As you may have noted in the reading of John chapter 5, their discussion begins in verse 10. Would you notice the way it begins? The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It's not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Here was a man that had been whole, made whole from this infirmity. And the first thing they could say, Man, what are you doing? Today's the Sabbath. It is unlawful for you to carry your bed today. Now the Lord over the next few verses was about to teach both them and that man a very valuable lesson. It was not a sin for him to carry his bed. That was a tradition that had been brought to bear by the Jewish rabbis. Nowhere in the Old Testament did it ever say, Thou shalt not carry thy bed on the Sabbath. It had not said that. They had taken what was there, expanded upon it with human tradition, and used it to teach what never was supposed to be taught to start with. Doesn't that remind us of the error of putting our opinion in the place of Scripture? In Matthew 15, verses 7 to 9, we still read that thing, that text that says, This people's heart is far from me, for they draw nigh to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You see, it wasn't an unlawful thing for that man to carry his bed. If it had been, the Lord wouldn't have told him to do it. Jesus, in fact, urged him to appreciate he had been made well and these others ought to have been able to rejoice with him over the goodness that had happened and had come his way. In the consideration of the verses that follow, the Jews were so angry at what the Lord had done, the fact that in their mind he had violated the Sabbath, that notice what they did, that which they desired in verse 16. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. They wanted to put the Son of God to death. They wanted to take his life. 
we ultimately understand they succeeded. It would take a few more, a couple more years to do it, finally at Calvary. But already the seeds of hatred were beginning to germinate in their mind, and they ultimately would cry out in the very ears of Pilate, Crucify him. Crucify him. May we thus, when we come to that point in our study of John a couple months from now, remember the hatred and the seeds that had already begun to develop even as early as the text tonight. As you notice also, we come to the character of the third witness. We've only looked at two of them. One of them, of course, as we learned earlier, was the nature of the works themselves. The other was John the Baptist. The third witness, Jesus said, was God himself, the Father. As you notice carefully the text of verses 20 and following of John chapter 5, we learn that Jesus said, The Father testifies of me. The Father has borne witness of me. In quickness, recall with me, if you would, some passages that make that clear. First of all, on the occasion of the Lord's baptism, and again on the occasion of the transfiguration, what was the voice that came from heaven? This, he said, is my beloved Son. You see, there was a statement, a voice that others heard God testified, This is my Son. But that isn't all. For there's a text we ought never to forget. It's found in verses 39 and 40 in John chapter 5. Note this witness that accords to the same. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. This other witness that is in line with the Father are these scriptures. These ought to lead any diligent reader to the Son of God. When one opens the passages and reads in them with an open heart, an honest heart, a diligent heart, these ought to lead that person to the Son of God. After all, wasn't it true the Old Testament is a schoolmaster to bring us to who? Christ. The Old Testament ought to lead us to the New, and the New is full of the Christ. Isn't it thus a tragedy today when there are those who open this book, but it doesn't seem to lead them to the Christ? In their mind, it leads them elsewhere, testifying to us they aren't reading it honestly. They aren't reading it for the power of the Scriptures that are supposed to testify of the Christ. As we contemplate that matter, might I ask us to notice that does bring us, doesn't it, to our fourth witness. The fourth witness is Jesus himself. Did you notice the opening verse we read? Jesus bore witness of himself. He admitted, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the Christ. One thus couldn't ignore who the Lord said he was. That brings us full circle, doesn't it, tonight? That's the question every one of us have to face. Who do you say Christ is? Either he is the Son of God or he was an imposter. It cannot be both ways. If he, in fact, claimed to be the Son of God, but he wasn't, he was a liar. He was not who he said he was. The gospel is a fake, and the church is a mere myth. But friend, if he is who he said he was, he, he was and still is the Son of God, he was God in the flesh, he was the ambassador sent from heaven to reveal to the human family what it takes to get to heaven. And I'd submit all the evidence is in favor of the latter, for there are four witnesses that lead to that conclusion. John the Baptist, God himself, the works the Lord did, and Jesus himself, 
is an ironclad set of witnesses that Jesus was who he said he was. It's thus a sadness when some in the world today say he was only a good teacher or he was only a prophet, but they aren't willing to admit he was the Son of God. That's nothing but sheer blasphemy. That's the same as admitting he was an infidel. He was an imposter. He was a fake. And that's the furthest thing from what he was. Because when he was put to death by humanity, on that Sunday morning, that first day of the week, up from the grave he arose. And the power of God was in that arising. Tonight, as we have brought ourselves to this point in our study, one final thing, and we'll use that as the invitation note or that which closes the lesson. One other thing the Lord said in the context of this discussion with those Jews. In John 5, verses 28 and 29, he said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Forevermore, the Lord said, there will be only two potential varieties of resurrection. Though a million years may have passed since my death and yours, there is coming a time the Lord's going to return. And when he does, every single individual that's ever lived is going to be raised. And there's only two possibilities. There will be those raised in what is called the resurrection of life. They will in fact be those that will stand before God and will be reckoned as worthy of heaven. They will be in fact pronounced as blessed in the eyes of the Father and forevermore they'll be able to wear a blissful smile on their face. Not because their works merited it, because they obeyed faithfully what God had delivered and in the reward that God extends to them, heaven will be their home. The only other possibility, those that are not in that category, they'll be resurrected to condemnation. Won't that be a very sad thing to be raised only then to be pronounced, depart from me, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. And in the conflagration of that last day, in the fiery pits of a burning hell, shall they forevermore be. Which resurrection will you experience? The way you live your life now and the way I live mine answers that question. It's not going to be a mystery. We will know. And so what about you tonight, friend? Will the resurrection of life be your abode or will the resurrection of condemnation? If you tonight are not in a position of having the salvation of heaven at your disposal to where your name is in the book of life, make that occur tonight. The plan of salvation reads as follows. Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His wonderful name as the Son of God and be baptized. On that occasion, your sins are washed away, your name's enrolled in the book of life, and you are placed as a member of the church. If you have begun that walk in life but haven't been faithful, you've lived in a way that's been shameful, disgraceful, and disturbing, and in fact the Lord perhaps has shed tears, if you please, at your unfaithfulness, don't remain in that state. Come back to His loving side. Let us pray on your behalf with regard to your repentance and confession and God has promised to forgive. If we could be of help tonight in either of those ways, don't delay for another moment, but come if you would while together we stand and while we sing.